You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I always thought I wanted to be a novelist, and I thought I wanted to write the great novel of the 20th century. You know, who didn't? And then I wrote about food, and I realized I didn't want to write a novel, that I could say everything I needed to say about life through writing about food. Food writer and TV chef Nigella Lawson. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. The thing about food is that it's more than just fuel for a metabolic process in the human body. It's a social construct that can bring family or friends together in a way few other experiences can. And that's what's at the heart of the writings of Nigella Lawson, the well-known British-born food writer and TV chef. In fact, when I met her in 2004, the book we talked about was one she called Feast. And in a conversation with Nigella Lawson, it's all feast and no famine. So here now, from 2004, Nigella Lawson. The interesting thing for me is writing about food. I came to this as a writer, not as a cook, if you like. I do like cooking at home. And so I like to explore how to write about food and how food relates to uh, other things in life. And Feast really goes back very much to my first book, which really was really more of a writing book. It didn't even have pictures of food. Uh, And so that you don't run out of that in the same way as that human beings don't tire of eating or when mm-hmm. they do tire of eating you know there there are deeper problems than color oh, well, that's true and they may only tire for three or four hours and yes. then they're back to it i think it's quite <laughs> i often think i'm never going to eat again but you know lo and behold that's just because i've had a large lunch and then it's supper time well the, the, but the, see, the reason that, that i thought of this is because you mentioned in your book very early on how you remind us how absolutely essential mm-hmm. to our being. This isn't just fuel we're putting in mm-hmm. our bodies. This is a social experience. This is a psychological yes. experience. It is a bonding between human beings experience that every human being who's ever walked on the planet has experienced. And yet you are succeeding in writing. I mean, this is the most, most quintessential subject of matter there is. And yet you're able to turn out best-selling books about it. I mean, when there, there are thousands and thousands of other books out there mm. at the same time, there must be something that people are keying into to what you're writing about that, that makes well, you able to sell these many books. <laughs> let's, let's, let's hope that I do. But I think, in a way, that what people key into is my lack of of specialist knowledge and I know that sounds an odd thing to say which is because I'm obsessive about food so it's not that I'm not denigrating myself to be you know charmingly modest I'm actually <laughs> I mean to say that most people who write about food and who go on television about food or who are who talk publicly about food are professionals mm-hmm. they have training and I admire these people and I would often love to eat their food But it's not the way I cook, and it's not the way most people cook, and it's not the way most people think of food. Because once you, if you're in a restaurant, I don't know how to say this because this sounds horrible and I don't mean it like that, but in a sense you're selling food. Mm -hmm. And so that you are propelled towards novelty because why should I pay $14 for this plate of meat when I can make it much simpler for myself? I'm not propelled towards novelty. I don't charge my friends yet. <laughs> so when they come round for supper, my only desire is to cook them something that will make them feel welcome and they will like eating. I'm not trying to impress them because if I, if I need to impress my friends, then that's a poor state of affairs. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm very free of this, I suppose, the, of that commercial need to show 
why the extra buck is, is worth mm-hmm. it. And I think that's liberating for me. And it means I can concentrate when I cook and when I write about food in in talking about what interests me. And I was talking to a fellow food writer today who said to me, I so like it the way that when you use someone else's recipe, even if you change it, you credit it. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, that for me is part of the story. I might change it an awful lot, but every recipe has a story and I'm interested in that story. But because that's because I don't have to claim to be original and mm-hmm. new and because that's not I'm not that's what not what I sell myself on because I'm not trying I mean I'm not trying to sell myself. I want people to read my books. But I have to say I want and this sounds like a terrible thing to say. I really like it if they enjoy reading the book mm-hmm. because that to me is is so important it's that just like food communicates something mm-hmm. very essential i think the relationship between a writer and a reader mm-hmm. is enormously intimate and even though when i've done television purportedly you see more of my life because there's a camera in my kitchen the real me is every single word or in in a book and i and i like I like that feeling of in total engagement. You're not having a, I love my crew but the, you know for other in other media sometimes that relationship radio and writing is very much more direct and mm-hmm. intimate I think because there aren't a lot of people you know faffing about doing something so that I like that I like that directness I think. There is a a certain fellowship that accrues when you prepare a meal for someone, or in this case, when you write about preparing mm. a meal for someone, that we feel a, a very primitive kind of bond with that, with that I person. Think, I think that's right. And I think that you cannot... I think there is no point writing unless you're going to be honest. And I think there's very... When I started off, I have to backtrack a bit. When I started off, I always thought I wanted to be a novelist. And I thought I wanted to write the great novel of the 20th century. You know, who didn't? Um, I then realized that I was going to have to get started if it was going to be even the great novel of the 21st century. (laughs) And then I wrote about food and I realized I didn't want to write a novel, that I could say everything I needed to say about life through writing about food. Because when I write about food, I'm often not talking about the food itself. I'm talking about everything that led up to that moment. And... And I think that I used to be more disparaging. I used to say to people, oh, it's, it's just a food book. And I try not to do that. It's a kind of embarrassment, I suppose, thing. But whether you write an autobiography or a novel or a book about food, it means nothing unless you're being honest. And as a writer, you always have to find your voice. And you don't know where you're going to find it. And I didn't ever think I'd end up being a food writer. <laughs> but that somehow is where my voice to me feels truest. Well, being able to say all the things you wanted to say in print, is that especially true when you're writing about food that is centered on specific holidays or specific feast times, specific times when we want to get together with friends and family and eat? I think writing about specific feast times or occasions, it gives a very good way in. I think you relax when you're writing, when you know how you're going to travel to things. But I still don't know how the journey is going to end <laughs> because sometimes you start thinking you're going to cook one thing for a special occasion and you know what? Life intervenes and you suddenly don't have the energy. Mm-hmm. And so I try not to impose too much. I try and let the food d- dominate what goes in if I really want to cook it. And I have a very, very 
a cruel session which is called choose it or lose it <laughs> when I go through all my recipes and unless I know exactly where it fits in and I want it and I really am, am prepared to argue for that recipe I get rid of it because it's only by cutting off sort of cutting out extraneous material which doesn't feel extraneous when you've written it believe mm -hmm. me you know it's very hard but if you if you do that, you make the book really the essence of what mm -hmm. it should be. I, that's what I try and do. But, you know, there are still, you know, occasionally I think, oh, I wish I'd got that recipe and all. Mm. You know, I always want to write more. It's a very large book. It's nearly 500 pages. And I did write begging and pleading emails to <laughs> both my US and British editors asking if I go up to 600 pages. And uh, they said no. Some, sometimes politely, sometimes not that politely. There's always room for another book. There is. But I, I don't like to rehash things, so I've, I, I think I wouldn't want to do Feast Part 2. I have got a sort of idea that's in its embryonic stage and I shall wait and cook a bit more and think a bit more. But everything comes together separately. I want to cook the food, but I have to have... For me, it's more pleasing if there's an argument I want to make or a thought process I want to kind mm -hmm. of wallow in. After this short break, the sometimes outrageous ways Nigella Lawson prepares a holiday meal... back to my 2004 conversation with Nigella Lawson. The holidays are also so laden with traditions yes. and things that people expect you to cook, expect you to prepare, and you have, in some cases, turned that on its head by, by giving them, say, the thing that they thought they were expecting, but with a little twist to it. Sometimes there's a little twist. I mean, I think the difficulty is, is that I think what we in the modern world miss an awful lot is ritual and tradition mm. and especially funnily enough in food when we're used to so much more novelty and variety than we ever have been so that I think it's very good to get back to the holidays and if, as far as I'm concerned, I don't know if this is the case in the States, but in Britain this is the case, that moaning about how boring a turkey is is, is as much part of the tradition than making it. <laughs> now, I actually don't think a turkey is boring, but you moan that. And the same way as I quite like at feasts, everyone, it's actually part of it to say, do you remember that year when, you know, Aunt Jeannie cooked that really disgusting, <laughs> uh, you know, mushroom casserole. And that's part of it. And you almost have to say, you know what, bring it again. Because mm -hmm. it isn't just about, oh, what a fabulous rarefied feast. It's, it's part of the history of the feast in your family. But bless her heart, even my mom, it took her sometimes a couple of years to get something just right. Yes. And, uh, and things don't always go right. I mean, I've had... Cooking is interesting because on the one hand, it's science, mm -hmm. but not completely... I can make the same thing several times over, comes out a little different. Mm -hmm. And that's what I like. That's what I like about cooking, that it does, it's like it has its own soul. Mm -hmm. It won't be restrained. But there too, you're running up against the brick wall. Now we have become, as an American society anyway, so accustomed to you can walk into any McDonald's yes. anywhere in the country and get exactly the same sandwich. You can walk into any, uh, you know, any chain restaurant anywhere and it'll be exactly the same yes. as it was in the city you just left 500 but miles ago. Yes, that's true. And funny enough, there's a chef who I admire a lot called Gordon Ramsay in Britain and I think mm -hmm. he's doing a television show in America it was called Hell's Kitchen when it was in Britain and at one stage he made everyone all his trainee chefs cook a mushroom risotto and when they came at him he was furious because everyone was different from the other and he said he wanted consistency and I feel that's where we differ but it goes back to the notion of I'm afraid to say this is it commercialism which is that 
I understand people. They want, they're paying their money. They want to pay for what they mm-hmm. expected. Whereas, can you imagine saying that to your grandmother? You know, excuse <laughs> me, I came here expecting to have a really good apple pie and the pastry's soggy. That's it. I'm, you know, you couldn't, you wouldn't do that. And that might be part of it. Sometimes things are repetitive and the, you know, the flaws you feared would mm-hmm. not be there are there. But uh, I think that uh, I like a lack of conformity but I think this isn't as much a temperamental thing as anything else and I think how you cook uh, really does I mean really does uh, reflect your personality mm-hmm. and I feel that I'm ne- I've never been good with authority I'm not good at Obeying authority, I'm not good at being an authority. So I constantly subvert my own recipes by giving little <laughs> notes in the margin saying, look, you can ignore me entirely. This works just as well if you use oil instead of butter or mm-hmm. why not use rose? I carry on because I, I, I think that if you write about food in a funny way, you are being treacherous to your own cause sometimes, which is that cooking is not actually about following a recipe. It's something that happens once you have grown less afraid of the recipe. Mm -hmm. And so that I always feel I I do want to, I suppose, subvert my own authority by saying, I have none. This is my opinion. This is what I like eating. And, for example, in writing about Easter, I... You know, was talking about the strange amalgam of, I suppose, the paganism and uh, faith. And the church has always been very clever mm-hmm. at absorbing pagan rituals because that made it easier for the church to have some authority. Mm-hmm. And Easter was, in fact, before it was, it was a Christian festival, was also a Norse sort of greeting for spring. Mm-hmm. And th- these things are very... They're, they're, they're somehow merged. But it occurred to me when I was writing it, people often think... The commercial aspects are, in fact, faith-driven, which is, for example, we all think Easter eggs mm-hmm. are very commercial. <laughs> but it occurred to me, and I don't know if I'm right, so if, I, if I'm not, I'm very glad to be corrected, that one of the reasons why eggs feature a lot at Easter is that during Lent, people had to give up eggs as they're rich, but no one told the hens. So the hens carried on laying... <laughs> And so, of course, they would be kept somewhere mm-hmm. in some hay and then painted bright colours and used for decorative purposes because that that came out of that tradition. And for me, it's quite interesting to reflect on what might be the cause of things that we take for granted now. Do you think our Easter diners will be ready for hot cross bunny? I'm afraid I have a very, very <laughs> evil sense of humour. This, I have to say, I don't want, want to upset listeners of a sensitive disposition, but this is a rabbit curry. <laughs> Um, I could almost picture Glenn Close standing in the kitchen stirring the pot. I couldn't resist it. I couldn't (laughs) resist it. I tried. But there are three things I have in in the book which a nicer person would have taken out. (laughs) And one is, you're right, the hot cross bunny. And one is uh, Massacre in a Snowstorm, which is a kind of meringue cream and pomegranate mix. And then there is, this is the one that is really cruel, my Rudolph pie, which is made out of ground venison. That's I, for Christmas. I, you know, I have to confess, when I got to that page, I'm thinking, well, maybe it was named after Sir yeah. Rudolph uh, something yeah. rather than the Explorer, but no, it really was. However, I will have to tell you also, as I got into the closing chapters of the book, when I first got the book, I should say, yeah. I was just thumbing through, and I came to the one, and I didn't realize it was the Halloween chapter. Oh, you thought, what has I thought, happened to I this woman? I saw pus. I thought, all right, this has got to be one of those odd little Britishisms for something. Or French or, recipe. Or, or French, yeah. <laughs> But no, it is, an, it is a Halloween it's, recipe. It's a Halloween recipe. I often think some people 
get a bit too precious talking about things like Halloween, <laughs> whereas actually children just want the sugar. They're mm-hmm. just trick-or-treating, and you want to, it's amusing. So I just, I had this brainwave that I set myself, and it's not, you know, I don't know why I'm more pleased with this really terrible uh, recipe than I am with some things which are much more delicate, which is that if I made up <laughs> lime jello with milk rather than water, it would look like pus, and it does. <laughs> Nigella Lawson turned 62 last month. She's most recently been on TV in 2020's limited series, Nigella's Cook, Eat, Repeat. And you can find easy Amazon links to Nigella Lawson's books at our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also find my interviews with other famous foodies, my 1991 conversation with Wolfgang Puck. The best thing about making up a great dish is you get immediate recognition. People tell you, God, this is so wonderful. If you build a house, you have to wait two years. They're going to walk in. And then I said, oh, yeah, it's wonderful, but the roof leaks. And my 2009 talk with Emeril Lagasse. They take it right out of the refrigerator, right onto the grill, and they wonder why it sticks. Then they wonder why it's all charred before it's cooked internally because it's on so high. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything wherever you listen to podcasts. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my conversation with a popular musician who studied with and worked with one of the great lyricists of our time, Ira Gershwin, my 1995 interview with Michael Feinstein. It is rather extraordinary to me to think that people regard me as, quote, an expert. I do not consider myself an expert about this music, but still, it's fascinating to me that that I've come to this place in my life. Uh, It certainly is uh, much better than I ever could have dreamed. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. (laughs) 